0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how are you doing today, man?
1: Well, the good news for you is that there's so much other stuff that I don't have time for jokes today.
0: (laughs) We shall see, Derek. We shall see. Well, I'll do our best to uh, keep us on task. There are about six chapters and uh, quite a few questions to ask in uh, these texts that we're going to be discussing today, because these are... Easily, some of the most uh, well—at least to me, the uh, at least one of these chapters are in my like top five of like most disturbing and questionable texts in the whole Bible. Like mm-hmm. by the time we get to Genesis 19, I'm going to be asking a few questions, and I remember the first time that I like started. That I ever questioned, like the sacredness of the Bible or you know the content of the Bible, it was when I learned about what was in Genesis chapter nineteen because you know there's a lot of questionable stuff in it and it like didn't really slow down. It was like thing after thing after thing and I'm just like, it was mm-hmm. definitely the most pearl clutchingest chapter for me when I was a when I was a teenager and learned what was in it and I was like, why do we keep just going past it and why do I hear so little about Lot? When he has like a significant role in the overall Bible story. And then I, of course, read Genesis chapter 19 and I'm just like, oh, this is a difficult thing probably to talk to, you know, teenagers about. It's a difficult thing to talk to anybody about. If you're not like coming from a uh, an Abrahamic religion context or a Christian context, it's a very difficult text to try to read to try to justify to try to make sense of right and you know it's simultaneously an exciting task to take on to try to do so but also a very daunting one because you know I mean we're going to talk about it but just like how do you make sense of these texts and right. uh, of course that famous question that you always be asking how exactly does a text like this function like we have it just just in this reading of these six chapters we're going to be discussing today we have, you know, texts of terror. We have, you know, some very, very scandalous origins. Like we've we've talked about this in mm-hmm. the last several lessons. Like this is every story or every section of the Come Follow Me that we've read was con- has contained a very questionable origin story, and this to me is probably one of the most questionable origin stories. So, mm-hmm. trying to make sense of that, among other things, is just going to be. You know, it's a task for anybody, and I just want to kind of preface what we're going to be looking at today by saying it's okay to have these questions, and it's okay if you don't find answers to these questions. I'm still going to be wrestling today with uh, some questions that I asked myself of the text, um, and, you know, I feel I don't feel great that I wasn't able to come mm-hmm. with uh, what I feel are satisfactory answers, but, you know, part of the task of theology in the first place is just— You know, learning to ask the right questions and then wrestling with those questions. So hopefully I I have that much to offer today as uh, as you guys listen to me personally wrestle with some of these questions.
1: Yeah. And I think there's there's a couple of things that I want to say about this. First is that um, asking the right questions is a really important thing coming to the because if you come to the text with the wrong questions, you're going to find what you're looking for. And uh, and we'll we'll just see examples about, uh, for example, if you take all of these chapters as examples of what to do, this is a this is a going back to what Alfred said. We don't want to translate Genesis because then people will think that that's what you're supposed to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Look at Lot. Yeah. Look at Lot and his daughters. Look at Abraham and his uh, son Isaac. Look at all of the um, uh, there's just a bunch of stuff that we're not supposed to do. And this gets back to something that Bishop Robert Barron, uh, who is a Roman Catholic media personality, uh, has said. He distinguishes between what's in the Bible and what the Bible teaches. Let me say that again. He distinguishes between what's in the Bible and what the Bible intentionally and deliberately uh, teaches. And so there's a bunch of stuff that's in the Bible that is not part of the proclamation of uh, God to God's people. It's, mm. it's in there. And we'll see some of these things as uh, stuff that's in the Bible. But, but uh, Bishop Barron centers on, well, the Bible's teaching us Christ. It's teaching us about Jesus. It's teaching us love for God and love for neighbor. It's teaching us the redemptive plan of God. And all this other stuff is in the Bible. But it may or may not be, uh, and, there, and there's, some, there's some troubling stuff. There's slavery in the text. There's slavery in this text, right? Yep. And uh, we've, got to, we've got to sort of separate that just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible's teaching it. And I've said before that the Bible's not a children's book. It is uh, a collection of documents recorded by people who are wrestling with discerning what God's will is. And and we get to we get to continue this wrestle, and I'm sure that as you've uh, been at Union, you've seen people in class and classmates wrestle with the text. Yeah, yeah, uh, and one uh, of those. The third thing I was going to say is the, my problem with these chapters is that every text here reminds me of some other text that I want to bring in. I could probably spend hours on each chapter bringing in all of these other texts that I could talk about hours about. Um, so maybe let's just start because I don't want to uh, take up too much time. The first, Well, <laughs> that's the
0: biggest lie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we could, we would take up. A lot more time, but you know, time is limited. We got six chapters to discuss today, and uh, they there's there's mm-hmm. a lot in them. So we'll try to. Okay, I just unintentionally made a joke there. Did you hear it? No. There's a lot in them. Oh, <laughs> whoops! Oh, whoops! Who got jokes? Who got jokes today, Derek? Who got the jokes? <laughs> oh yeah. All um, right. Anyway, now before we go ahead and uh, begin. Uh, with the content for today, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, Genesis 18 through 23. Mm -hmm. So uh, just some prefatory words here. Again, there's going to be a lot of content, a lot of questionable things going on here. Uh, Genesis 18, we get the annunciation to Sarah and Abraham about the arrival of their actual son, Isaac. We get judgment Mm -hmm. pronounced on Sodom. Um, and also to remind you, Abraham and Sarah are old at this point. Um, it's going to be literally impossible for them to have. It's literally impossible for them to have children. But uh, we see a callback to this theme of God justifying and helping the barren mother, the refugee father, and eventually the second, bore son, second born son in Isaac. And by the time we get to Genesis 19, um, like I said at the beginning, this is probably where some of the most questionable content in the uh, whole of the Bible is. I remember that just kind of once as a joke, I was talking about, uh, you know, when I, when I first read this chapter, I like did my best Stefan from SNL. Have you ever watched uh, SNL, Derek, and seen Bill Hader's character, Stefan?
1: No, I don't. I don't
0: know it. Okay, he's like this character that comes on Weekend Update and talks about all these nightclubs and all the stuff that he has, all the stuff that they got. And I remember when I read Genesis 19, I was just like, this chapter has everything. And it was just like, this place has everything. Gang rape, terrible parenting, attempted murder, misogyny, fire and brimstone, destruction, incest, and a lot more. And like, the in my Mm. top five, like I said, my top five pearl-clutching chapters like it's there's just a lot going on here but uh, we're going to try to focus on just a couple of things um you know namely the destruction of sodom and gomorrah the confrontation of the uh uh that lot has with the with the men of the city and the eventual uh conception very scandalous conception of uh, moab and ammon which we'll also talk about hopefully in a way that does justice to To both Lot and to, and especially to Lot's daughters, because there's a lot of, in our Western colonial, Western colonized context, there's definitely going to be a temptation to, uh, to, uh, to condemn them and to speak Mm -hmm. ill of them in a context that we're just not all that familiar with, that we're not familiar with at all. And then by the time we get to 20, uh, we're going to get to Abraham, back the story is going to go back to Abraham and Sarah. We'll learn about the birth of Isaac. We're also going to talk about the uh, the eventual exile of of uh, Hagar uh, by Sarah and Abraham, and try to see where the justice is in um, you know in that whole situation. And then, of course, the very famous story, but still very questionable story of Abraham and Isaac. And uh, we'll be talking about some of the readings of that text and what we're supposed to make of that in these certain readings. And hopefully, well, hopefully Mm -hmm. try to make some sense of it. And and if not, at the very least, ask the right questions about the text. So let's go Mm -hmm. ahead and begin with uh, Chapter 18. And I think you have something you would like to say, Derek, about the Annunciation to Sarah and Abraham. I
1: think um, one thing I want to follow up is that there's this tendency in our culture to want to look at things in a black and white way, like it's a Disney movie, like, oh, we need to figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and, uh, and the Bible isn't that type of literature, right? I mean, there's gonna be mm-hmm. people who look at, and so you kind of have to make a decision it was was lot good or bad was lot's wife good or bad i mean there's some people who wonder if god was good or bad and they read the story of of sodom as a genocide of a people and Mm -hmm. that lot's wife was actually doing the right thing by being in solidarity with the people of sodom in in face of a a larger god who hated them right so we the the scripture doesn't In itself give you one right way of reading it i think we have a lot of leeway for likening the scripture unto yourselves and some people are going to look at the the narrative of the binding of isaac and say well abraham messed up or no abraham was right and god was wrong or they shouldn't have done it like they're just um like whether you use this as a model of faith is a choice and we will see this throughout these chapters Uh, it's not explicit whether each of these things is is good or bad. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have a choice as to how to read them. But what I want to say about Genesis 18, I first want to back up and remind people of the rainbow of Genesis 9. And I said this before, I'll just say it briefly, is that the rainbow is a sign not to remind us of something, but it's God reminder to God's self that God is not going to destroy the world by flood anymore. So that when God sees the rainbow, God remembers God's promise, and oh no, I won't do that again. So what I take about the rainbow is that God loves to be held accountable. God loves making covenants, which implies that God wants to be known for keeping those covenants, and God wants to be trusted, and we can hold God accountable to God's character. Let me say that again. We can hold God accountable to God's character. And we've talked a lot about prevailing, let God prevail. But I think the real secret behind that is that to let God prevail is to be so intimately familiar with God's character prevailing in your life that you will hold it back to God and say, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me and we'll get to where that comes from later but holding god accountable to these promises is what i think faith is it's the faith of Mm -hmm. abraham it's the faith of um uh well it's the faith of abraham in genesis 15 it's the faith of abraham in genesis 22 it's the faith of abraham in genesis 18 with uh bargaining over sodom Mm -hmm. but let's now talk about the annunciation for just a second all right we've got some interesting things and and here's a here's a question we have like the the portrayal of god blessing uh abraham and sarah who are unable to have a child like how do you take that do you take that in terms of god fixing their disability do you take that in terms of god uh uh what am i trying to say uh that god providing a reasonable accommodation do you take that in terms of like like it could be either good or bad depending on how you see it or do you take it as like well this is the product of a patriarchal society where women's value is dependent on children so is it a good thing to just fix the situation by giving her a child? right there's just so many questions that i can't answer in a definitive way and it's uh, a mess and we have to decide for ourselves like how are we
0: going to take it okay and it is um, clear that they wanted children
1: it is clear that they wanted children, right? Mhm. Uh, so what one interesting thing is there's this text in the Babylonian Talmud in Yevamot 64A and B and I'm not going to read it but it reads creatively various verses to talk about Abraham and Sarah that they were each what is called a tumtum. And so the Talmud and Rabbinic Judaism has six categories of Gender, in a sense, and two of them, the tumtum and the androgynos, are uh, what we would now call physical intersex conditions. And uh, here, this text identifies as Abraham and Sarah, each of them was a tumtum. And that, in part, explains their fertility and uh, their infertility. And then there's another uh, later in the same text uh it says that Sarah, our mother, was an Ailonite, which is another one of these gender categories, which would be the female equ- equivalent of a eunuch, a woman with no womb. Okay. And so what we've got is some very interesting gender nonconformingness ness here in the text. And I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, but I think there's a fruitful re- way of reading these texts to say, hey, like this world is a mess and God's up with us in a mess. Now how that gets fixed or how that gets navigated, like God doesn't really fix the mess exactly. Um, it, it's complicated, right? And God really doesn't fix the mess with Hagar either and we'll, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to talk about this promise to uh, Abraham and Sarah because it looks like, at some point Abraham and Sarah were both uh, unable to have children and that God had to bless uh, Abraham with fertility, with Hagar and with Sarah. Mm -hmm. But um, this Annunciation is interesting because it's given in the context of hospitality, and I don't want to say too much about this, but let me try to make it quick. In the ancient Near East, they didn't have uh, 911. They didn't have restaurants. They didn't uh, have... Oh, they didn't have cell phones, right? If you were in the middle of the desert, you were uh, completely, one hundred percent dependent on your hosts, whatever village you were staying in, for food and for water and for shelter and for protection. Like this uh, is unlike anything in the modern world, where we have other structures in place to make sure our needs are take care taken care of. We're never in uh, in the same situation. So hospitality in the ancient Near East, I don't even like that word hospitality because it sounds like, oh, you're just giving someone tea and cookies or something. What it is is the protection of the stranger, the stranger, and that is a, an inviolable an, uh, value in the ancient Near East. And let's look at Leviticus nineteen thirty three through 35, when a stranger or a foreigner resides among you in your land. Do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Mm. And uh, we see Abraham and Sarah going through extraordinary details. The text is very detailed about exactly what they're doing to set before these three visitors to welcome them and to make sure that their needs are taken care of. And we see this also with Lot works very hard to protect the two strangers who come to visit him. And the people of Sodom do not protect the strangers, but in fact do the opposite and abuse them and threaten them. So that's kind of what I wanted to say about the first part of Genesis 18. The next part, uh, I wanted to uh, interesting. If you look at it, I'm going to read from Alter's translation. It says, This is 18 verses 11 through uh, 13. All right. Uh, And Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah no longer had her woman's flow. And Sarah laughed inwardly, saying, After being shriveled, shall I have pleasure, and my husband is old? And the Lord said to Abraham, why is it that Sarah laughed, saying, "Shall I really give birth, old as I am? Is anything beyond the Lord?" And so here, um, Will Gaffney has identified as uh, this text as a uh, very interesting from a womanist perspective of like here, a woman's pleasure is named, women's sexual access is named, um, not just the bearing of children, but the the sense of pleasure as well. Mm. is uh is named by the text and then after this uh we've got the bargaining over sodom and i don't want to go into all the details but essentially what happens is the lord warns abraham that the lord is going to destroy sodom and gomorrah for their wickedness now notice this is very important that the decision to destroy Sodom is already made before all of the events of Genesis 19. So the Genesis 19 stuff is not the reason why, right? There's pre-existing sins mm-hmm. that the, the that are not named yet in the text that um that are important to uh, to realize. And I think we have to go all the way back to Genesis 13 for one of the clues, and I'm not going to Go turn to it for the sake of time. But you have a very uh, important description of the fertility of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, agriculturally. Like they had lots and lots of food, they had lots and lots of produce, they had wealth, they had uh, so much food and an abundance of food that people starving all around would want to show up. Mm-hmm. And apparently the uh, people of Sodom didn't like that. They did not want to share their food. They did not want to share their resources. Oh, by the way, that's the reason why it says this in Genesis 13 is why Lot even went there in the first place. So yeah. Lot and Abraham had to separate and Lot decided, I'm going to go to this place where there's uh, fertile land. Mm-hmm. So, so that's uh, where that goes. And what was I saying about them? Oh, yeah. So they had all this abundance and didn't want to share it. And we'll get to that later. But the Lord decides to destroy Sodom. And I love Abraham's character here. This goes back to this rainbow theology of holding God accountable to God's character. Right. That is Mm -hmm. faith. The more I argue with God, the more faithful that is, because that means I have a basis for arguing. I have a basis for knowing God's character. So it says, um, Abraham. This is verse twenty-three of chapter eighteen. All right. Abraham stepped forward and said, "Will you really wipe out the innocent with the guilty? Perhaps there may be fifty innocent within the city." And then uh, it says, "This is a far be it from you to do such a thing to put to death the innocent with the guilty." Making innocent and guilty the same. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do justice? That's uh, verse twenty-five. Ooh. I love that. Will not that the a, judge? I love that. So Abraham isn't uh, submitting. Abraham isn't just oh, I gotta I gotta be obedient. Abraham is told. Uh, Abraham is told it's not like the Lord said, "Oh, I'm should I do this or not?" The Lord came to Abraham the and decision said, "Decision is made." Yes, yes. Uh, the Lord said, "I'm going to do this," and the Lord, uh, and then so Abraham pushed back. Abraham pushed back, and then Abraham bargains down from fifty innocent to forty-five all the way down to 10. And I've heard that maybe Lot was trying to quickly calculate in his head, maybe I know 10 people. There's Lot and his wife, and Lot had either two or four daughters or maybe more and had two or more sons-in-law or something like that. Maybe Lot, in his head, stopped at 10 because he thought there might be 10. Mm You mean Abraham? Oh, yes, that's what I mean. Abraham stopped at
0: 10. Because he was considering Lot and his family.
1: I think I think that's why Abraham stopped at 10. Okay. So here we get to see Abraham's character. Now, I would want to read, when we get to Genesis 2 and the Binding of Isaac, I want to read this character of Abraham into that story as well. And oh, we'll absolutely. Get
0: there. Absolutely. So do you especially have any- this whole, no, Especially this whole—no, especially uh, this whole—what is this? Verse 25, like where he basically asked mm-hmm. God, won't you do the right mm-hmm. thing? Won't God do what is just? Just. Right. This was the first verse I thought of when I got to the uh, Abraham uh, sacrificing Isaac story. I'm just like, this is that same Abraham. This is the same Abraham that asked that question. And I was wondering if Mm -hmm. in my reading of that text that he was still that same Abraham, if he was still considering that. If this act was one of – like if we wanted to take the more faithful reading of the text that uh, Abraham knew what he was doing or whatever – Mm-hmm. was he did he have this in mind did he have the justice of god in mind as he uh as he went to do this did he know like that that uh isaac would be okay but you know i'll mm-hmm. ask these questions again by the time we actually get to that mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. uh i'll save this for now but um anyway is there anything else that you want to say about uh 18 because i did want to uh i didn't want to Go back to the hospitality piece as we began the conversation about nineteen. Right? Yeah. Let's. Uh, there's nothing else for me for eighteen. Okay. Anyway, so let's move on to a nineteen, and I already talked about all the stuff that is going on in this chapter. It's a lot of it's a lot of mess, and uh, you know there there is something I'm trying to get something positive out of the text and full disclosure that might not actually be the point of the text I'm not going to pretend that it is mm-hmm. as I uh, you know, go through my wrestle uh, of the text sometimes the texts are terrible and disturbing and terrifying uh, there's a violence in there that you may mm-hmm. just not be able to explain and rather than figuring out how to explain it or make sense of it you're better off figuring out how to sit with it and Genesis 19 could be one such text Uh, you know, for a lot of us. It is still kind of that way for me, but I am feeling better about where I have, um, you know, where I've gone with the text. But let me get into a brief summary. The destruction of Sodom Mm -hmm. and Gomorrah. The Lord has already made the decision, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's three primary parts to this chapter. There's the angel's uh, investigation of wickedness of Sodom and the righteousness of Lot. There's Lot's family's escape from Sodom and Gomorrah, and then there's the uh, the uh, troublesome birth of Lot's sons, Moab and Ammon. Now, I want to be I want to begin with the encounter of the men in the city. They seek to uh, sexually assault the holy men that have visited Lot's house. And uh, this is another discussion on hospitality here and the assault of uh, the holy men in Lot's house. This is a strategy of humiliation. That's how it was understood in uh, the, uh, an- you know, the ancient Near East society. Lots response to this is a problem. Uh, but his response does tell us something that is, you know, kind of liberating the queer folk, uh, which is that the daughters are offered as suitable surrogates that shows us that the men's wickedness isn't actually being gay, but rather sexual violence. Uh, that is one uh, piece of evidence that lets us know that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah isn't actually related to the orientation of the men in the city, but actually just this sexual violence. It's the inverse Of hospitality and Mm -hmm. protection that they're supposed to be offering. It's a straight, you know, it's gang rape. That's what it is. And then when we get to the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see that validated when the sins of Sodom are highlighted, not as gayness, but a lack of hospitality. I only say this here because this is a, uh, this is a classic clobber passage used to justify violence against our LGBTQ siblings using just these two notes about the text. We can demonstrate that there's actually not a real justification for queer violence, for queer dispossession, for queer harm. And uh, one more thing worth mentioning relates to uh, Lot's kind of uh, moral weakness relative to Abraham and how that puts him in all these dangerous situations. Now you talked about the hospitality of Abraham in chapter 18, and uh, now early in chapter 19 we are seeing Lot's hospitality. Now we see. This kind of moral weakness of Lot alluded to throughout the text ever since we meet Lot. Uh, We see his lack of deference to Abraham when we get to that part where you talked about Lot choosing where he's going to go when Abraham and Lot separate. Like what Lot should have done when Abraham gave him a choice of what land he was going to go to. The proper thing for Lot to have done, according to their custom, would be to defer back to Abraham, to give Abraham the choice. But Lot took the choice. Lot took the choice to go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, which was the more fertile land. And that's like the first subtle small hint that we get that Lot isn't as righteous as uh, Abraham. So his less gracious hospitality to the holy visitors. That's the next thing that we see in this particular chapter 19. And then we see, mm-hmm. of course, his choice to pitch his tents near Sodom and eventually live in it. And then again, early in this chapter, we're going to see Lot have an express willingness to sacrifice his own daughters although that sacrifice is definitely immoral calls into question his whole honor as a father whereas Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is counted as righteousness to him so we see all these parallels through similar situations of Lot and Abraham and there's like all these subtle little digs at Lot's character and we don't really we don't really get why or see why that is until we get to verse ni- until we get to chapter 19 all of these moments it seems in lots life were deliberately included like seemingly for the express purpose of justifying his lesser genealogical position and explaining several of his experiences his questionable experiences especially as consequences of his weaker moral character at least when in terms of uh comparing him to mm-hmm. abraham And further, these weaknesses, they're not all that significant when you make these comparisons to Abraham. Like, let's just look at this uh, example of Lot's hospitality Mm -hmm. and and compare it to Abraham's hospitality. Um, The distinctions made between them with regard to the holy visitors seem almost insignificant because Lot's hospitality, I believe it is actually genuine. But Abraham, for example, Abraham ran to meet these holy visitors. That's what it says in the holy text. And Mm -hmm. Lot... Simply rose to meet them. Abraham served cakes of choice flour. Lot served unleavened bread. Abraham stood by them while they ate, whereas at Lot's feast, they all ate together. It's, again, super subtle stuff. That they put into the the text, but it feels like they're doing it deliberately to point out who Lot is. And when we get to the climax of Lot's story, we may perhaps gain insight as to why these details are included and why Lot's fate and his family's fate was as it was. Now, after the holy men prevent the assault on Lot, they tell him that they're about to destroy the city. And they tell Lot to get his people out, like get his family out. Now, Lot goes to get his sons-in-law. That's the immediate thing that follows in the text. And uh, they don't take him seriously, which is yet another indicator of Lot's kind of moral inconsistencies. Why are Lot's sons-in-law not taking him seriously here? And also bear in mind that Lot has been in this city. He's lived in this city. And his place is at the gate of the city, which indicates he may have some kind of position of power Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. leadership here. So Lot is not just near Sodom. He is entrenched in Sodom. He raised his daughters in Sodom. And then we get another indicator immediately follows when Lot is told again to get out of the city. But instead of getting out immediately, Lot hesitates. He has to literally be dragged out by these holy visitors. And then immediately after that is a negotiation where Lot refuses the instruction to flee to the hills as he is told. He refuses out of fear and instead asks to flee to the nearby city of Zoar, which the holy men do eventually uh, grant. Now, Lot does eventually make it out to the hills and, you know, he gets to the hills out of fear, too. But that's where uh, we see uh, Lot's wife, who, uh, you know, makes the quote unquote mistake of looking back and she gets turned to a pillar of salt because she looked back. Jeffrey R. Holland would say that her sin, her mistake was looking back after Sodom longing for Sodom, for that life that the Lord told them to get out of. We could definitely have a conversation about that, and I'm sure we're going to have a conversation about that once uh, Sunday school comes around, so I'm going to skip that for now. But uh, by the time we get to uh, the cave in the hills, that's where we see kind of a poetic justice play out, where uh, Lot's daughters, who were earlier in this chapter not having a voice, and they were offered by Lot to a gang of men for sexual violence, they actually end up getting Lot drunk, And they uh, rape him in order to conceive uh, their sons. So, I I mean, that's the end of the chapter. And there's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. A couple things that I want to name in this account that are disturbing. Though this account is disturbing, I I don't feel it quite appropriate to judge Lot's daughters. They did grow up in Sodom. Sexual depravity was the quote-unquote norm at this time. They were engaged to men who scoffed at God's warnings and they genuinely believed that Lot was the last man on Earth. So I do kind of want to contextualize their their final act to uh, conceive their children mm-hmm. in that particular uh, with that particular background. And uh, as messed up as this whole thing was, and we'll see this theme throughout the text, throughout the whole Bible, God can still fix it. God can still quote unquote fix it, or better put, He can still bring His purposes to pass. It's it's uh, you know though the Moabites and Ammonites were a thorn in the side of Israel for a long time. The most famous Moabite in the Hebrew Bible, who is Ruth, ended up being the ancestress of David and eventually Jesus Christ. So God brought good out of a family and story that was riddled with a lot of foolish and bad choices and also of weak faith. Uh, This is yet another example of um God making a way out of no way. He makes a way out of no way when it comes to, you know, Lot and his daughters, he makes a way out of no way when it comes to Hagar, he makes a way out of no way when it comes to Abraham and Sarah. It's like even Lot's story is going to have a good ending. And all of these things, whether it be the birth of Isaac, the birth of Ishmael, the uh birth of Ammon and Moab or uh you know, the sacrifice of Abraham mm-hmm. of Isaac. There are just several examples throughout this text of God making it work, and uh, that's something that we can all take hope in. That is the uh, choice that I am making with this text to, uh, to uh, help me make peace with it, is that even with all these poor choices, God is still bringing his purposes to pass despite all of the disturbing, problematic, scandalous stuff that is a uh, present in just this story of Genesis 19. Jesus mm-hmm. is still going to come through this. So God is still going to pull through in the end. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, that is kind of what I want to take from the story. Uh, what about you, Derek?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there and it, this goes back to my point about we can't automatically assign. Oh, complete, lot is completely good or completely bad. I mean, we've got later right. texts in the Bible that identify lot as, as righteous. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Lot was righteous enough to be saved, or at least it was based on the righteousness of Abraham that Lot was saved. But all, the other
0: wrinkle, <laughs> but in also this, he was a buffoon.
1: Yeah, uh, but the other wrinkle in this is that a- Abraham isn't completely righteous. He messed up a number of times. Yeah. Uh, yep. In terms of uh, lying about his wife being his uh, sister, deceiving people. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things that I don't know uh, if people realize is that if you go back all the way to the foundational hinge story in Genesis 12, the beginning of the call of Abraham out of Mesopotamia to go to Mm -hmm. the unknown land that I will show you, that you don't know what it is yet, it says, Leave your land, leave your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham didn't exactly do that. He brought Lot with him. Lot came from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. Maybe Abraham should have left Lot behind in Mesopotamia. So Lot's father, Haran, uh, died uh, early. And that's, I think, part of the reason why Abraham brought Lot with him. But maybe he was never even supposed to bring Lot. And that caused all these other wrinkles, Lot settling in Sodom uh all this other mess but like you said God mm-hmm. is able to work through that with lot and, and his daughters uh and then Moab uh which of course people may not realize this but it sounds like uh may which means from father that is this this uh son comes from the woman's father mm-hmm. own father uh so there's this uh, it's so interesting how here we've got Transgressive sexuality bringing in the Messiah, you've got
0: uh yo mm, yes, Yeah,
1: and we see this m- many times in yep. the scripture that transgressive yep. sexuality brings the Messiah. there's this moab story there's um later on of course ruth and and Boaz, that's quite transgressive, mm-hmm. then we've got Judah and Tamar in genesis thirty eight uh which oh I probably shouldn't even start on that, but um. Tamar poses as a sex worker to get uh, to have sex with uh, her father-in-law, Judah, so mm-hmm. that she could have a child that she by right is uh, ought to have. And, that, and then that ends up the product of this union ends up being in the genealogy of Jesus as well. Mm-hmm. And um, then there's, of course, Mary with the transgressive sexuality here is that. Christ was born of a virgin, that there was no man needed um to to have this just child. So that even there, Jesus was not the product of a heterosexual union. All these straight people love to boast that heterosexual sex is the best thing in the world, but it didn't even lead to the Messiah, right? So mm. how can you think it's the, 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 the be all end all of everything, right? Heterosexual mm-hmm. heterosexual sex is the alpha and the omega, it's everything like nope, no it's not. Mm. Um And then, of course, there's Rahab, the sex worker, who gets listed as uh, in the genealogy of Jesus, which, ironically, she's uh, noted for her hospitality, Mm. right, in Hebrews and in James, where she's like, look, it was because of her hospitality that she welcomed in the spies and, and then ended up being in the lineage. So I just I probably should not talk about all these other things. (laughs) <laughs> but just let me say that there, and like, like I said, I think we've got a choice as to how, how um, generous we are with Lot's daughters, uh, because for all they knew, apparently the the destruction of the world was was entire, and even the the uh, preser- preservation of Zoar might have only been temporary as long as Lot was in it. Like, how did they know that that it wasn't destroyed afterwards? So, the text has the the women ironically this is one of the few texts in the in the bible where women talk to each other right the sisters talk to each right. other the older one says to the other and they show initiative they show de- decision making they show um uh, uh, making a way out of no way like so they yep. show some agency here i'm not i don't i don't want to judge like i said it, it, what they did is completely good or completely bad right but what i want to say is there should be some understanding when what they did is really no different than what um according to the narrative the children of adam and eve did there had to be incest there right among the second and third generations of of uh adam there mean, had to be called-
0: Let's call this what it was, though. This was still rape at the end of the day. They got their father drunk.
1: Right. 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 That is that is the like case. Like, the
0: incest part, yes. But the rape part, like, now, I mean, they did that for a reason. And this kind of mm-hmm. echoes back to whatever we saw with, uh, you know, the not the conception of Canaan, but the curse of Canaan. There was right. clearly some kind of sin against the father there. And, I, I like, I'm hesitant to even call it that. But there was some kind of... Mm -hmm. impropriety involving the family patriarch in this story but Mm -hmm. even still i'm still uncomfortable condemning this action for the reasons that you've already outlined i just want to say there is that difference there
1: right um and then same with noah and his uh uh he had three sons and their wives but then by the time you get to the grandchildren of noah they're gonna have to have uh sex with with sisters or cousins or brothers or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. So you've similarly got a bottleneck for these daughters of Lot who thought, well, we're just like Adam or we're just like Noah. The, the whole population's got to start with us. And so that leads to this to this incest. Now, some of the rabbis haven't been too kind on Lot with this because they said, well, yeah, Lot got drunk the first night, but then he should have known not to get drunk the second night. And the fact that he chose to get drunk is... uh is uh is interesting um but like i said this gets into whole things about like we don't want to also get into victim blaming we don't want into like there's just a big mess here and there's no easy solution um other than to say this isn't a children's book it's telling some really really uh, terrifying uh, stories and we have to we have to wrestle with them and yeah. it's uh, no one gets off completely clean, and no one gets off completely innocent. Uh, I mean, completely guilty uh, right. in, in these texts. Yeah. Let's see. Like Any very messy. <laughs> yeah. Um. You mentioned the. Uh. I want to just name. Uh, I could name some other texts. Uh, about Sodom. There's the First Clement 11, 1 text that talks. Um about that Lot was saved because of his hospitality, and that was the contrast. Uh, Then there's the Matthew 10 text. This is the the great missionary discourse. And Jesus says, and this is uh, Matthew 10, verses 14 through 15, "...and if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your message, shake the dust off your feet as you leave that house or that town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for the region of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town." This is about hospitality. It's about the welcome of the apostolic missionaries who were sent out, and the towns that rejected them uh, would be have it worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, which shows that Jesus thought of rejection of the stranger as the fundamental parallel as to why even to bring up Sodom and Gomorrah to begin mm-hmm. with. There's also this... Um, if we go back to... Uh, I I talked about some of the, in the October 25th, 2021 episode where we talked about Doctrine and Covenants 124, I talked about some of the texts around hospitality and Sodom and welcoming of people, but I, um, so I'm not going to repeat that, but I just want to say that, uh, there's this one text in the Babylonian Talmud as well, Sanhedrin 109a, and here's what it says about Sodom. Now, they had beds upon which travelers slept, and if he, the guest, was too long, they shortened him by lopping off his feet. If too short, they stretched him out. Eleazar, Abraham's servant, happened to go there. Said they to him, Arise and sleep on this bed. And guess what guess what Eliezer did? What'd he do? Well he didn't sleep on the bed. Mm. He uh, outsmarted the people of Sodom by saying, Oh, well, I made this vow that I after my mother's death I would never sleep on a bed ever again. And so he had a convenient out so as to not fall into their trap. But what's so interesting is the Sodomites in the ancient world were portrayed as people who wanted the reputation of Uh, of being inhospitable wanted the reputation of not being a safe place for strangers because they didn't want all the strangers to show up across the border and get all the food and get the welfare and get everything else. So the sodomites wanted to make Sodom great again.
0: And then what happened to them? They got destroyed.
1: Exactly. And uh, I think that's part of why the threat of um, sexual violence was uh, what they chose because if you just kill the foreigners, well, there's no one to go spread the stories. You want to leave the people terrified and alive and horribly violated, so that they will go and say, "Hey, no one, you don't you don't go to Sodom." Right? They wanted the exact opposite reputation than Zion, right? Where Zion was a place where people were one and people were included and people were um loving and caring and people and there were no poor there were no poor right because they took care of the poor right and sodom and gomorrah didn't want to take care of the poor and there's just so many places where jesus oh see like i said there's so many texts i want to bring into this
0: yeah where jesus (laughs) talked
1: about economic violence as one of the the primary sins right he he rambled on and on and on about economic sins he didn't ramble on and on about the gays right so um but let me just go back to what the Sodomites did with okay. this this story about Eliezer and the the bed that they that they basically they tortured people who didn't fit in. Yeah. Right. They and I think that's what people in the church do to people like me. It, not all people in the church, right? Not all, <laughs> <laughs> not all members, but as a culture, we've got this situation where I am. Being stretched or chopped to fit into a straight bed that I don't fit into, and that doesn't feel good, and that's no better than Sodom of of being um, in hospital to outsiders, which gets back to a very interesting irony that yes, the uh, the rape that happened or or was threatened would have been um, same gender rape, which is especially humiliating. Um Especially problematic uh, and especially uh, terrifying to outsiders, right? Mm-hmm. But so what that means is 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 making the strangers queer and treating them in that way uh, actually goes the other way. It means if this if the strangers are queer, then the queer are strangers and unwelcome and un- unfitting in, which means if the queer are strangers, that means the people of Sodom are straight. That it, that they um, so I think there's this uh, interesting irony uh, uh, there. I just th- think that um, anyone who tries to make sodomy out to be same gender consensual, uh, publicly accountable relationships like that's not what this text is about. Um, anyway, I should probably stop talking about Sodom so much, and because there's a lot I want to say on Genesis 22. Indeed. And there's a lot I want to say about Hagar. So, wow, we've got a problem.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Whoa, we're already at 50 minutes?
0: Yeah. That snuck up on us, didn't it?
1: Uh-oh. I'm only like <laughs> a third done with everything I wanted to say.
0: Welp. <laughs> Let's see what we can do in this time that remains. Like, So that was just Genesis 19. We got... To get on to the expulsion of uh, let's just focus on these two stories the expulsion of hagar and the sacrifice of uh, isaac if we can Mm -hmm. get that far so what chapter is this so birth of isaac that happens in chapter 21 and then when we get to uh where is this yeah chapter 21 so we get the birth of isaac and then the eventual uh, expulsion of Hagar. <sighs> okay. So it looks petty when you read this text. We're, again, we're we're in Genesis 21. Uh, Isaac is born. Like that whole thing happens. Mm-hmm. But then we get to these verses. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac, So she said to Abraham, "Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit with my son Isaac." There's a little bit of wordplay here to shed some more light on what set Sarah off. A better word for the word "playing" in this verse might be laughter, and the name Isaac means one Mm -hmm. who laughs, Mm -hmm. as uh, that that was Sarah's response to uh, hearing she would have a child, and laughter is kind of the theme. Uh, surrounding Isaac, that and that's what his name means. So basically, when Sarah saw Ishmael, Isaacing with Isaac, she got scared that Hagar's son would replace her own son. So she may have been, she mm-hmm. may have seen Ishmael as an equal for the first time uh, that day since her own son was born, and that threatened her. She felt like her son's birthright or his son's inheritance was going to be taken away. By Ishmael, and that was likely what caused her to want Hagar and Ishmael out. This also brings up a whole nother question about this idea of an inheritance being a zero sum game. We see Sarah threatened by this very idea that Ishmael would even have what her son has already been promised, you know, and has to send Hagar and Sarah, Hagar and Ishmael away. And by this point in the story, we've already seen Sarah take initiative a couple of times. She took initiative to even conceive a son by having Abraham uh, take take uh, take Hagar as a wife, mm-hmm. so that they might have a child. And now we see her taking initiative again. We see her taking initiative to make sure her son is quote unquote protected and to make sure that he has his inheritance. This time, by having Abraham get rid of, uh, you know having Abraham get rid of uh, Hagar and Ishmael, that the inheritance might be preserved to Isaac, that Isaac may not be replaced. So that is what I think is the primary thing that leads to the expulsion of uh, Ishmael and Hagar. Do you see anything else in this text that indicates why Sarah may have done what she did, Derek?
1: No, I think it is out of that sense of, of jealousy, as, as you've noted, um, and the problem is this whole scarcity mindset that they were all operating under, like this zero-sum, like, oh, why can't we just all have a Zion community where the flourishing of one person leads to the flourishing of everyone else, this competitive uh, scarcity mindset is uh, is problematic, and I think this is yeah. very problematic here in the church. Like people say, "Oh, st- gay marriage. Oh, that threatens st- threatens straight marriages." I well, women getting the priesthood. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, like why is it that people are threatened when when there's more joy and more love and more harmony in the world? I just don't understand that. Other than it's like I said, this whole sodomite mindset.
0: They think it of, means less for them. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what it is.
1: Right. But but in the church, if one person suffers, we all suffer. If one person rejoices, we all rejoice. Like, I don't get it why people are so dedicated to the the dehumanization of queer people. Like, do you really benefit? Like, it it damages straight families. Like, straight families aren't able to be fully whole if you've damaged your relationships with queer people. It's just no one is able to be themselves. Like if one member suffers, we all suffer. So I don't understand why people want to uh, suffer. And I think this this pattern of saying, oh, you have to be married heterosexually to be exalted, that's problematic because there's a lot of collateral damage. Think about all of the straight spouses and the the kids that result from these relationships that are often doomed when you cause people to marry outside of their actual legitimate orientation, right? A lot mm-hmm. of these marriages don't last. Um, there's divorce, there's heartbreak, there's pain, there's just, is that what you want, right? And, and then same thing with with celibacy. I think uh, I've heard it said that requiring people who are not who don't happen to be asexual requiring them to be celibate is a form of uh, convert, conversion therapy right it's not something we ask of straight people yeah if straight people if two if a straight couple um it falls in love and they want to marry we we celebrate that why why don't we do the same for queer people and now I'm saying stuff I've said before, but all this is back to this whole scarcity mindset thing, which mm-hmm. is uh definitely one of the uh lessons that I learned from the text and um it's connected I think with this push back towards God, right because demanding God bless us is a uh, from an abundance mindset, saying, "Look, there's 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 got to be blessings for me. There's got to be plenty to go around. Mm-hmm. Blessings everywhere, right? And holding God accountable to that comes from a rejection of this scarcity mindset. Um. Anyway, so uh, the the one thing I would want to talk a lot about, sort of. <laughs> Uh, what do we do with this theologically, the expulsion of of Hagar and Ishmael? But for the sake of time, I should just have everyone read this marvelous uh, article called Hagar, an African-American Lens by Emily P. Cook. And it's really great. It summarizes um, issues around uh, the use of enslaved women's bodies, uh, surrogacy, uh, the challenges around patriarchy around slavery um, and then one of the the one point that I would like to draw out here is sort of this contrast between liberation theology versus survival theology that we see in the womanist theologian Dolores Williams and uh, we see liberation theology clearly in the book of Exodus where God swoops in mightily and and delivers people from the problem and that's not what happens to this woman who is triply marginalized and um, as a, an Egyptian, as a woman, as an enslaved person, and as a also as a single mother now, right? Because she is she is uh, rejected from living with Abraham and Sarah, and so this this th- liberation theology has this this sort of swoop in and deliverance thing, but survival theology is well, it looks like God was able to help her survive. Uh, there's desert uh, wilderness experience, providing what she needs to get through, um, providing the well, providing uh, sel- uh, um, survival, like physical survival for um, Ishmael and Hagar. And so that's probably all I want to say. But I, I just want to I would normally have quoted longer paragraphs from this, but I'll just we'll have to link to it and have everyone read it somehow because it's really good. And there's too much here. To uh, to quote in the time that we
0: have, mm-hmm. and something that I would want to link uh, part of this story to when we get to Abraham and Isaac, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac in particular is the uh, how God intervenes on their behalf, um, Hagar mm-hmm. and Ishmael's behalf in particular, when uh, Hagar and Ishmael arcs are, ex- are mm-hmm. you know ik- uh, expelled and basically doomed to certain death in the wilderness. Um, we get to this point where there's so much grief in Hagar at the impending death of Ishmael. And, uh, she, it gets to a point where she doesn't even want to like, look at her son because she know her son is about to die. So she like hides him under this bush and then goes a distance away from him. Uh, but then God again makes, makes themselves known to Hagar and, Mm -hmm. you know, lets Hagar know that like gives her in essence, a patriarchal promise that Abraham was given, something similar to it, again lets her know that uh, Ishmael is going to be the father of a great nation, and that he's going to, you know, you know, take care of them, or sorry, that uh, God is going to take care of them. That there's going to be water for them. Uh, her child's going to be an expert with a bow, and then God is going to hear the voice of Ishmael as well, um, which is, you know, what. The name Ishmael means God has heard or God hears something like that. One of the two. Um, But anyway, the promise is reiterated to Hagar when, when she's in the wilderness, God intervenes to save both Hagar and Ishmael. And we're going to Mm -hmm. see echoes of that when we get to the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac. So I think that's all I'll say there is just, there was some measure of justice done to Hagar uh, and Ishmael, mm-hmm. they were both saved in the wilderness. Um, and, uh, also her, the promise given to Hagar prior that, uh, that, uh, that, it, that Ishmael and his descendants would never be slaves and that they'd be wild, that they'd be skilled, um, you know, skill with the bow and all that other stuff, just all that stuff does come to pass for Hagar. Like God does have a role in, uh, And I guess, preserving Hagar's Mm. story as well. So that's all I wanted to say before we got to uh, Abraham and Isaac. Yeah. So when we get to uh, this story of Abraham and Isaac, again, several questions uh, that are worth asking. Uh, My primary questions were, what kind of God asks for this? Like, what kind of God asks for what, you know, God asked of Abraham? What was going through Abraham's mind in this whole situation? what was exactly the purpose of this trial and of course the you know the big question and the primary one that the come follow me manual asks is what we are supposed to learn from this story uh, i asked this first question because The sacrifice seems cruel. Like I'm I'm just going to put that out there. Asking Abraham to do this seems cruel. Having banished Hagar and Ishmael, Isaac is now Abraham's only son who shouldn't even be there considering the infertility of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham has his own trauma of being offered as a human sacrifice by his father. Abraham was promised Mm -hmm. posterity, numerous as the stars of the sky, and now God is asking Abraham to give God his son. So again, what kind of God does that? And I still don't really have an answer uh like he he really wanted to put abraham through all that just for a loyalty test like that's what it says at the beginning of verse 22 or at the beginning of chapter 22 um yeah verse one after these things meaning the expulsion of sarah and of uh of a hagar and ishmael after these things god tested abraham like god really wanted to put abraham through all this just for a loyalty test it just sounds like too much even if child sacrifices were only slight aberrations in the days of Abraham, uh, like are there more gaps to be filled here that can help us make sense of this, uh, of this whole thing? I, I don't, yeah, I don't see a bunch. Like, I only found a couple of things that may help us soften this a bit. But is there anything pref? Like, is there anything you want to say about this briefly? Derek? Yeah, let me
1: let me say. Uh, well, I have a bunch to say. First of all, there's this whole contrast <laughs> with the with the. Um, uh, with the narrative that we've had so far from Genesis fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, uh, and eighteen already, with all the trouble to get Ishmael, all the trouble to get Isaac, all this mess, and um, all the trouble to get Isaac a a preferential position is what we just had in the in, Gen- in Genesis twenty one, uh-huh. and going through all this work to to give uh, Isaac a preferential place. Now God says "We'll just kill Isaac right and so this contrast is really interesting, like how he Quite. um how I think um, this whole Abraham mistreating uh, Hagar and Ishmael right that's that's not cool yeah. because they're blessed they were literally blessed by God yep Hagar was yep. blessed by God if you go back to mm-hmm. Genesis sixteen with Ishmael and out of Ishmael would be a great um uh, through uh, through Ishmael. Abraham would have many many descendants like why why is this this makes no sense and then uh, you get this this really interesting thing here uh, let me look at Alter's translation of Genesis 22 all right um, the very the very beginning of what God says to to Isaac because some of this doesn't always come come through in the in the translation to Isaac so or here- Abraham to Isaac, right? What God to Isaac, says okay. to Abraham? Abraham, wait. All right. Yeah, what God says to Abraham? And this is twenty-two, verse one. And it happened after these things that God tested Abraham, and He said to him, Abraham, and He said, Here I am. And He said, Take, pray, your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac. <laughs> Dang. And go forth to the land of Moriah and the offer escalation. him Escalation. Yes, and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall say to you. And what's interesting about this is the way Rashi parses out the uh, this thing. Take, pray, your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, as half of a dialogue, right, with Abraham, and Abraham has the other half. So it would be, take, take your son. Which one? I have two. Your only one. Well, each one is the only one of his mother. Uh, The one whom you love. Well, I love both my sons. Isaac. Okay? it's This fourth um, sort of volley is when you actually, God has to name Isaac, right? So that's how Rashi takes this. But anyway, it just magnifies the magnitude of the sacrifice. Take your only son. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac, and... Offer him as a burnt offering. So, what do we do with this? Now, let me just say some things up front. Is a lot of Christians have read this as Abraham obediently crumbling under this authority of a divine command, but I'm reading it very differently. Now, there's not one right way to to read this text. Some people might go say, you know what, Abraham failed the test. He should have just said no. Right. That's one way. Um, but what I'm going to do is to say that Abraham actually succeeded and passed the test and prevailed with God and argued with God in through his actions, and we will see this. Um, and I'm I'm drawing a little bit upon Patrick Chang, a queer scholar here uh, for this, but the way that I read the text is that Abraham never intends to kill Isaac, that Abraham knows that Isaac will survive this and that... Um, Abraham can insist on Isaac's life up until the very end, and that Abraham knows the whole time that he can negotiate God into retracting God's commandment in the end. And here's my evidence from the text. The first is Abraham's silence. Like, if I were teaching this in a room, I, I would have everyone, you know, with their Bibles closed, I would say, okay, God says to Abraham, go kill your son. Class, what does Abraham say? And I guarantee you, no one would be able to say what Abraham said. That's because the text doesn't say that Abraham said anything. Abraham is silent. He doesn't say, Here I am, like he says, like at the beginning. He doesn't say anything. So when God gives the commandment, he doesn't say, Oh, like Nephi, I will go and do. He Mm -hmm. says nothing. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no, but he doesn't say yes. He's silent. And Abraham never, never, never agrees to anything. He does not agree to anything. God gives the command, and Abraham, without a word, takes his son and his servants, and he goes. But he goes very slowly, delaying at every point to give God many opportunities to back down over the course of three days, right? Mm -hmm. So God has three days to, to retract this. And all the time, Abraham is saying nothing to God. Second, as Abraham and Isaac ascend Mount Moriah, uh, and of course we get a lot of, I can't even, don't have time to talk about how you have overlaps with the temple here. This is the Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, where you have overlaps with the crucifixion uh, of Jesus and the, uh, the temple sacrifices that go on on this mountain. But anyway, Abraham tells his servants as they ascend, stay here, we will go up and worship and then we will return to you. Notice mm-hmm. what it says. We will go up and we will return to you. Like, Abraham yeah. knows that they're both coming back down. Abraham knows they're both coming back down. All, so, you all, believe
0: yeah. he knows and that mm-hmm. this isn't a deception. You believe he knows.
1: I believe that Abraham knows that okay. that he's going to prevail. Ab- this right. we implies that Abraham knew. Yeah, like, I don't think he was deceiving the servants. I think he was okay. speaking the truth to this to, to the servants. He was so convinced that he knew that they would both come down alive, showing that Abraham never intended to kill him. All right. Third, when Isaac asks where the lamb for the sacrifice is, now here I, I'm taking Abraham truthfully again. Abraham tells uh, Isaac, God, him, God himself will provide the lamb, right? Or God, God's self will provide the lamb, showing Abraham's confidence that Abraham can change God's mind.
0: All right, Right? so again, you believe he's being truthful that this is not deception.
1: Right, well, I'm choosing to read it that way. Like, someone could choose to read. I'm not saying the evidence is is like, I I can prove this, but I'm choosing to read it this way. Okay. And fourth, we've been told all the way back from Genesis 15 last time, and I didn't get into the details of this, but... If you look at this Genesis 15 promise, the promise that actually gives uh, the promise of Isaac. Uh Abraham says to God, like what's up with this? Like Ab- Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir because I don't have a, I don't have a son. And um Genesis 15 promises an heir through his own, right? His own uh son. Mm-hmm. And and what about this word heir? Like, I'm, I don't know how to make a bigger deal about this, but the promise of an heir is a promise that your heir will outlive you by definition, right? Right. So if Isaac is identified as an heir, and this is the promise that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? This is the big thing. This is the big faith moment for Abraham um, that, that Paul talks about, that Abraham believed God— as an uncircumcised Gentile, believe God in this belief that his heir will outlive him and he will receive a promised child, Isaac. And this promise is the basis of Abraham's challenge to God. Abraham fully believes this promise. We see that in Genesis 15. Abraham knows that he's going to have an heir. Abraham knows that, that Isaac is going to come down this mountain alive. I mean, That's the way I read it. So here's what I'm putting all this together. What I imagine is that Adam, I'm sorry, Abraham forced God into a game of chicken where God and Abraham were both speeding towards each other, and the first to turn aside loses. And watch this. Abraham laid out Isaac on the altar. The details are so rich, like the, the temporal flow of the narrative actually slows down because you see the wood, you see the building of the ark, you see the binding, you see all these details, right? Abraham laid out Isaac on the altar, tied him up, and lifted his knife. And he did this not because he was about to kill Isaac, but because he was trying to show God how stupid the whole scene looks a loving father about to kill his son. Like, look at how awful that looks. Showing him Mm -hmm. protest. This, I think, is Abraham's protest. And what is my basis for this? Let's look at the Genesis 18, where God was forced into uh, bargaining down to just 10. Look at Genesis 15 promise. Look at this, the rainbow promise, where we've got uh, people Holding God accountable to God's promises, like that's the Abraham that I'm reading into this story. Isn't that interesting? Quite. And of course, I'm gonna. I can also pull back the um, the evidence from the. Uh, the Noah material where you have a clear condemnation of murder right this is Mm -hmm. our first big big condemnation of murder that says now murder is wrong and it deserves a capital punishment no murder like I would say that Noah could hold God accountable to that say look nope I'm not going to kill my son and then when God saw how this looked god remembered god's promise that isaac would outlive abraham and god backed down god lost many people think of this as an as an act of abraham's obedience but i don't think so god is the one whose mind changes here not abraham obedience is one person's will is conformed to the will of another whose will got turned it was god's will got turned to Abraham's will not the other way around so ultimately Abraham was able to change God's commandment and then God is the one who who said nope don't kill him right so God blinks and Abraham won And um, for me, faith is not an unthinking, irrational obedience. It's a creative and and courageous confidence that gives me, me, Derek, the boldness to challenge authority, right? This is the Abraham that I'm following as an example, someone who's not going to put up with unrighteous dominion, someone who's going to show how awful and ugly it looks as protest, right? Um, And... I think this is powerful for queer people, powerful for any marginalized people who are told, like, you need to be on the bed of Sodom where you're going to get stretched or chopped to fit. I'm like, no. And this is the faith. This is what what real faith is, one that will wrestle. Look look at Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord in Genesis 32, which I mentioned at the beginning of, like, saying, I am not going to let you go till you bless me. We're going to wrestle until dawn, and I'm going to get blessed. And I am not going to let the church go until it blesses me, right? That's probably the most shocking thing I'm going to say because some people, some some of the homophobes in the church want me to let go. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to let go. We're stuck together, right? I'm not leaving the church. I'm not letting the church go until it blesses me the same as it blesses straight people. And I, I think I'm going to tie this in with the brother of Jared, which I've mentioned a number of times, but people may not have heard this in a while. Look at what the brother of Jared did. The brother of Jared cried unto the Lord, and the Lord had compassion on Jer- Jared. Therefore, he did not confound the language of Jared, and Jared and his brother were not confounded. This is Ether 1.35. Like, Jared was able to say, nope, God, you're not doing that to me. There was something different about the brother of Jared something that gave him special insight, and we can learn that the prayer of someone different can actually change the Lord's decree on something, and we see this later with the bargaining over the plan that God gave to the brother of Jared. In Ether chapter 2, God says, okay, build these barges, and then the brother of Jared does, and then the brother of Jared says, look, this doesn't work. What you planned for my people doesn't work for my people. We need more light and we need more air. Uh, we need ventilation, right? These barges are dark and there's no way to breathe. And so, um, in fact, even in the in cases of the light, God says, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? The plan of salvation is negotiable. The Lord will ask me. What I want as a queer person, right? I don't, I don't, I don't like this idea that the plan of salvation is like those Sodomite beds that you have to fit in or get out, mm-hmm. right? And you know what is so powerful about the Lord's, uh, about um, the brother of Jared's faith is that Moroni comments on this in Ether chapter 12 saying, look, the brother of Jared's faith was so strong that God couldn't hold anything back from him. God will not hold back anything from me. I have the faith of the Syrophoenician woman who says nope to Jesus and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat from the crumbs from the, that fall from the children's table. I have the faith of Um, Jacob who wrestled with the Lord and prevailed against the Lord and that's why he was renamed Israel and I just love how ironically this ties back into Romans chapter 8 verses 31 and 32 it says Paul says what then shall we say about all, all these things if God is for us who can be against us indeed he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? There's a lot there, but this this Greek word um, for spare is the same one that's used in the Septuagint for Genesis chapter 22. It's used twice there where it says that Abraham did not spare his own son, right? Did not, didn't, didn't spare the son. Um, and the Septuagint is the the, Greek, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So here I think Paul is intentionally calling back to the, the binding of Isaac narrative and saying, look, God, if God won't hold back his son from us, he won't hold back anything from us, right? And if that's the God that we have, a God of love who will not hold back anything from us, Why in the world do people in the church believe that God is going to hold back blessings from queer people? It's just not possible with the Lord that we know or the Lord that I know throughout this whole um, salvation history narrative from Genesis to Revelation and then into our uh, modern revealed scriptures. Right. Mm -hmm. Let me just read this one more time. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? And so that's where I'm going to end it.
0: All right. Sounds good. And I guess I will save the rest of my thoughts for social media. This is indeed a topic we can spend a healthy amount of time on, but we are already Mm -hmm. well over time. So we will end there. And uh, before we do, I want to remind you guys that uh, Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, got a new podcast partner called Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. It features uh, in-depth interviews about religion, culture, featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. There was a recent episode with uh, the editor of Dialogue and our friend Taylor Petrie on it. Blair is also just a great guy. This past week, he's had a lot of thoughts on Twitter and on his uh, other project, Anti-Dialogue. Uh, Jazz Fans Against Racism, uh, mm-hmm. where he's shared his uh, more recent thoughts on uh, on this whole Brad Wilcox situation that uh, we didn't get into today. We've already shared our thoughts on social media this past week, so... Like, if you don't, if you've been living under a rock uh, and you don't know what we're referring to, you can go ahead and, uh, you know, look that up on our social media. I think we have one of our links to some of uh, Blair's content around that as well. But all this to say that uh, Blair does some great work on his podcast. And uh, you can learn more about uh, Fireside by subscribing on Apple. You can learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts at Dialogue Journal dot com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal dot com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at
1: the dot com on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and you can also search for us on Facebook.
0: Yes. And also uh, special thanks to uh, our friends David Doyle for editing the transcripts. Also uh, Stephanie Martz and uh, Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, social media and the team doing the incredible work of assembling our uh, episode outlines, which includes uh, Stephanie Peterson, Mary Galivanes, uh Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and uh, Beth Johnson. Those outlines also include the uh, Faithful Feminist episode from the same week, as well as Holy Human episodes, so you can kind of have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me uh, study helps and outlines, and you can find the links to those outlines at uh, in the show notes, as well as the drop-down mm-hmm. menu on our website, and uh, the same goes for the transcripts. You can find that link in our show notes and also from the drop-down menu, or you could simply go to... tinyurl.com slash btb outlines. And uh, also don't forget that my course is still out there. So uh, the uh, the, uh, LDS Anti-Racism 101, Abandoning Attitudes and Actions of Prejudice. It just seems like a good time to uh, remind folks, especially for those of y'all still reeling from Brad Wilcox's remarks this past week. uh, Don't forget that the course is still available you can find a link to that in the show notes as well also on our website uh, in our menu bar um yeah like the, the course is available and uh the feedback has been very positive i stand behind it uh i definitely know that you guys will get a lot from it oh yeah and uh the course also has a ward pricing option don't forget about that either uh, just in an effort to make things more accessible, uh, you can buy the course, and I prefer it if uh, it was your bishop doing it. But like, you can buy the course on behalf of your whole ward for a really low price. Everybody gets access to the course for that price. You can be able to, uh, you know, talk to people in your ward about the course. Have a, you know, a, a fifth mm-hmm. Sunday lesson on it, or have a, you know study group session on it and you know it's also not limited to wards it can also be like a, a book club a non-government government uh, a non-government organization or a non-profit organization mm-hmm. any kind of group really uh the ward pricing is accessible to i just want to be able to you know give access to as many people as you know who want uh the course <clears throat> and uh, i think that's all i want to say about it again link to that will be in the show notes and uh, on the website is there anything else we got to Let the people know? Mm, Nope, that's it. All right, cool. Well, thank you all for listening. Till we meet again next week. Okay, till we meet again next week. Bye-bye.